Good morning. How's everybody doing today? All right. Merry Christmas to you as we uh, jump into our Christmas season with this year's uh, Christmas series uh, called God Gave. Um, before we do that this morning, I, I know Clay had a whole host, uh, a whole host of announcements, and um, what you really don't need is one more. Uh, but I have to share one. My wife and Quentin's wife, Audrey, along with a team of ladies, has been diligently working on a women's conference. And uh, it's important that we announce that because you've only got about another week to sign up for that if you want a sweatshirt to go with it. And so, and, and here's the thing, like, um, you know, we've never done a ladies' conference before, as far as I know, at LifePoint. And uh, some of you may have been reluctant to sign up. Uh, but ladies, we, we want you to get involved with this. I'm telling you, it's going to be a day you don't want to miss. We have a lady coming from Texas that's going to be speaking, that's going to do a great job that you're not going to miss. And uh, my wife actually asked me um, to announce for you, for all the ladies who are here, uh, whatever your reason is that you can't make it. And we know that ladies are busy. You got a lot going on at home. You got a lot going on with kids. Um, you know, you got a husband to keep up with. Like, we understand that. So my wife has, has done a little research and found out that whatever your reason is that you can't come, your husband has already agreed to take care of that reason. Um, she checked in on that. And, um, and so, like, if you were, like, going, well, I would be there, but that's the day I'd plan to wash my vehicle. It turns out he's going to do that for you that day. Um, or if it was, like, I mean, we've got kids, he's going to take care of that issue that day and, uh, so that you can be here. So what I need you to do is to get signed up for that, all right, because uh, they put a lot of effort into it. In fact, yesterday I was hanging out with my wife, and uh, at lunch, uh, while we were eating lunch yesterday, she actually ordered a gift for the first 100 ladies who sign up to be to be there, and uh, so you want to be a part of that group. It's a gift. It's a gift that you'll want. Um, I think I thought it was nice. I'm not going to tell you what it is. You'll find out that day, uh, but you will want it. So, um, you know, they they are they're pulling out the stops. They are they're they're planning a day for you to enjoy it, to walk away with some helpful information. Uh, I think it's 20 bucks for the conference. 25 additional dollars if you want the sweatshirt. And um, you say, well, how do I sign up for that? On your way out the door, there is a TV that's turned up sideways. And you just click that link. There's a, there's a QR code on there that says Ladies Conference. You just click on it. It'll take you to a form where you can pay for that. You can, uh, the, you know, you, can, you can order what size sweatshirt you want. All of that kind of stuff is on there. If you have any issues with that, there'll be someone there in the Next Steps area to help you with that. Uh, but ladies, please get signed up for that. I think you will enjoy it. It's a Saturday, I think, from like 9 to 12. It's not even going to take up your whole Saturday. Uh, guarantee you're going to have a great time, so make sure uh, that you do that. All right? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this season. And guys, we open up your word this morning. I pray that, um, that it would be helpful. I pray that you would teach us something uh, today that helps us to walk more closely with you tomorrow. Um, Lord, I pray that you would, your Holy Spirit, uh, would guide our conversation this morning. You are the teacher. You are uh, our guide. And there's nothing that we have to say outside of um, of what you want to say. And so may uh, may you have freedom to move in this place and to speak to hearts. And God, I pray that you would give us courage uh, to hear your word and put it into action. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so if you have attended LifePoint for any length of time, you're already going to know what I'm about to tell you, especially if you have been here uh, for more than a year and you've experienced Christmas with us. If you're a guest with us today, I just want you to know 
you have picked the perfect Sunday to come and check us out because we are kicking off a brand new series. Uh, at LifePoint, we kind of, we, our messages are typically, we have conversations in series, not in sermons, where uh, we look at something for multiple weeks. And, um, and this is our Christmas series, which is kind of a challenge, by the way. Uh, we have been a church for 17 years, so for 17 Christmases, uh, I've tried to have some kind of conversation related to the Christmas season. And, and that's tough because it turns out it's the same story every year, right? Same story, uh, Jesus born in a manger in Bethlehem, um, angels, wise men, you know, that, that whole story that some of you are familiar with. And each year, trying to come up with something that kind of gives a new, maybe not a new twist, but just a new way of thinking about it can sometimes be challenging. But I love it because I love Christmas season. And if you have been around LifePoint for any length of time, you know that about me. Uh, you know, there's this guy, I think Gary Smalley's his name, wrote a book called Love Languages. And, um, you know, where it's important for you to understand your love language and to understand other people's love language. So you kind of talk in the same language. And my love language is gifts and gift giving. And so that makes Christmas like perfect for me. Like I have always loved Christmas uh, and not just for getting stuff, but I enjoy the giving of stuff. In fact, one of my, one of my fondest memories as a kid was uh, my grandparents used to do this really interesting tradition. Uh, my granddad would keep, he had this Tootsie Roll bank account. Do y'all remember like piggy banks? Does anybody else remember that? It was like, it looked like a big Tootsie Roll and had the little thing in place. I think he had several of those. And every day he would empty the change out of his pocket throughout the year into that Tootsie Roll um, piggy bank. And at Thanksgiving, when we would go to their house, my grandparents' house for Thanksgiving, we would schedule for all of his grandkids to come over and go shopping with the money from that Tootsie Roll bank account. Now, my grandparents had three kids, and among the three kids, there were five grandkids, right? So my, my aunt had one daughter, my uncle had one daughter, my mom had three kids, all right? So all five of us would meet, and my granddad would take that money, he would divide it by five, he would give it to each of us, and he would take us shopping for our parents. And uh, he would allow us to go and buy something for our parents. It was really cool for my parents, because me and my brother and sister would pool our money, so our parents got three times the gift as the other two, uh, you know, aunts and uncles did. It's kind of cool. Uh, but I love that because my granddad always thought it was important for us to be able to give a gift to our parents on Christmas morning. And, um, and, and I just, for whatever reason, it's one of, my, one of my fondest memories. I love going shopping with my grandparents. I love spending time with my granddad uh, anyway. And, uh, but to see the joy that he would have helping us to give a gift just meant so much. And, and for him, I think he loved Christmas as well. Uh, every year, he actually probably got more toys for Christmas than us grandkids did. I don't know why that was, but every member of our family would give my granddad a toy for Christmas. It was the craziest thing. Um, and so he loved Christmas as well. And just something about this gift-giving thing that just meant so much to me and that I learned so much as a kid. And and, you know, I, I feel like that the reason that we celebrate Christmas oftentimes with gift is because we were given the greatest gift at Christmas. At, at the, at, at, not really at Christmas, right? I didn't call it that. But when Jesus came, God gave us the greatest gift. It's kind of like we celebrate that. And, uh, and I just have the fondest memories. I love everything there is about Christmas. I love lights. I mean, I love the gifts. I love the season. I love the stories. I love the family time. Uh, I look forward to Christmas morning at my house. I mean, we... You know, I love watching my boys open up Christmas gifts. You know, I'm the dad that's like, what do you guys think about let's start in Christmas at 12.01, right? Like at 12.01, I'm ready to be like, Christmas! And I got two boys that are like, 
you know, it's like 1201. I'm like, hey, Christmas is here. And they're both like, it'll still be here at 1130. Like, it'll be okay. You know, it's like, you know, but I love it. Like, I love watching them open up. It's like the, the joy of my year almost is watching them open up their gifts. And, uh, and I, I mean, I, I love everything about the season, but here's one of the things I know is that we may sing joy to the world and we may sing songs like Silent Night that, that paints this picture of just peace on earth and goodwill toward men and, and, and all of the things that we talk about around Christmas. But for some of us in the room and some of us watching online, Christmas doesn't seem very joyous. In fact, it seems very stressful sometimes. Um, and the crazy thing about Christmas is it's almost like sometimes, or all the time maybe, but for some of us in the room, it's like Christmas, the rest of our life doesn't stop for Christmas. The same stress that we're dealing with, the same issues we're dealing with, the same frustrations we deal with, it's not like Christmas gives us a break. And so for many of us in the room, you know, the, Christmas is, we, we want it to be full of joy, and we want it to be fun, and we want it to be exciting, and we, we may even try to do that for our kids, but for some of us in the room, honestly, we dread this time of year. For some of you, this is going to be the first Christmas without a family member that you lost, and you're not even certain yet how you're going to even deal with that. Like, in many ways, you're already dreading that day because you know you want to try to be happy, and you want to be happy for the people around you, but you're like, there's this... There's this loss that I experience, this brokenness. For some of you, it's a broken relationship, and this is going to be the first Christmas where you, you're dealing with that. And, and, and for some of you, it may be that you kind of figured out how to deal with life in general as, in the absence of that relationship, but you're already aware that Christmas is like almost like all the progress you made. It feels like you just kind of start back over because it's the first time you're dealing with that and, and the reminder of what feels like maybe a failure to you. Um, for some of us in the room, it might be a diagnosis. You know, Christmas doesn't put your health on pause. And for some of you, you may have been dealing with something and you didn't know exactly what it was and you went to the doctor and then right here at Christmas, you get a phone call and this is going on. Or maybe it's the diagnosis of somebody you care about. For some of you, you hear me talking about how much I love Christmas and can't wait to experience it with my boys. And you're like, that would be great. But honestly, man, I got kids that don't want to see me, and really, I don't even want to see them at Christmas. And it just, I, I don't know. I feel like a failure as a parent, or I feel like my kids have let me down. And you're wanting to, you're talking about it being great, and I'm talking about I cannot wait for December 26th. And the real reality is, is for, mo, for a lot of us in the room, it's not even about Christmas at all. For many of us in the room, many of us watching online, Life just has a tendency to just right now for you feel really unfair and feel really difficult and feel very stressful. And the idea that God sent his son just doesn't necessarily feel all that helpful. And you'd like for it to. In fact, if I came in this morning and I'd have begun the message this way and said, how many people in the room believe that God loves them? You'd be one of the ones that you would raise your hand. You'd be like, well, I, I do believe God loves me. Right? I mean, we're, we're, we're here in the Bible Belt. The church belt really would probably be a better name for it. But we're here, you know, we're, we're here in a part of the world where you can play hopscotch across the steeples of churches. And many of us have heard, most of us, in fact, have heard our whole life that God loves us. 
And so if I said, do you think God loves you? There's a lot of people in the room that are like, I think God loves I know God loves me. At least I know I've been told that. But if I said to you, do you think God likes you? I think there's a lot of people in the room, a lot of people watching online. And sometimes even the guy sitting on the stage, he says, I don't know. I know God loves me, but sometimes it does feel like he doesn't like me very much. And when I ask you that question, I think there's a, there's a segment of the people in the room that go, well, I'm fairly certain God doesn't like me because you have the personality type that you go to your worst moment. And you think of the worst thing you've ever done. And you're like, if God is God and he knows everything, then he knows about that. And if he knows about that, I wouldn't like me if I don't like me at that moment. So how could God even like me at that moment? And you may, you may not have any trouble believing God loves you, but to think that God likes you, knowing everything you do inside and out, your thoughts, your words, your deeds, is like, that's a little bit overwhelming. In fact, man, I would have enjoyed the morning much better if you talk about Jesus being born in a manger and not even bring that up. You kind of learn how to cope with that, and then it's like, all of a sudden you bring that up, Matt, and yeah, I'm very aware of my failure, and there's no way God could like me. And then I think there's those of us in the room who, we also deal with God liking us, and we think of it kind of like a scale. And maybe you've never really thought about it this way, but when I explain it, maybe it makes sense. It's, it's kind of like life has this giant scale. You know, like the ones you see in the pictures or carved on top of the court, on the courtrooms, you know, across, the, across America, you know, the lady, and she's holding these big scales. And it's like we look at everything that happens in our lives, and it's kind of like we, we, we put it on the scale somewhere. So, you know, if we like get the promotion at work, we're kind of like, well, see there, God kind of likes me. And we put a little weight over here on the God likes me side of the scale. Or we lose our job at work and it's like, well, thanks a lot, God. Um, I thought you liked me, but that sort of feels like you don't like me very much. Or we get a phone call from the doctor and they say, hey, it's no big deal. It turns out it's something really simple. Well, look at there, God is good all the time. We put it over here on this side. Instead of that being the phone call, you get the phone call that says, hey, I hate that you're getting this phone call at this time of year, but this is really bad, and you might need to go home and get your affairs in order. And you're like, does God even know I exist? And you get to scale over here. And for many of us in the room, it feels like our scales are really tipped toward the way of wondering, does God really even care? In fact, maybe that's the question this morning. It's not so much does God love and like you, but do you ever find yourself in a place where you wonder, does he even care? Like maybe you're just so insignificant. I mean, there's seven billion of us on planet earth right now. Maybe we're just so insignificant. Like if there's a God in the universe that we talk about, and there's this God that knows everything and can do everything and can do anything, then, then does he really have time for somebody like me and you? And does he even really care what happens with us? I mean, after all, if God can do anything like I learned in Sunday school and God does whatever he wants to, then doesn't it feel like he doesn't care if he allows something to happen to me that just doesn't feel very good? And if you've ever found, found yourself wondering, is God there and does he care? Then what I want you to know is I want you to understand that you're in the exact same place as some very key people in the first century. You say, let me paint the picture for you. If we go back in time 2,000 years ago, 
to the first century, and they didn't know it was the first century because it didn't become the first century until Jesus came on the scene. And like years later, we go back and call it the first century. But if you were in, in, in Jerusalem, you were in Israel 2,000 years ago, there's a good possibility that you'd be wondering if God even cared anymore. You'd be wondering if God could even, if, if God was even, even, even understood your existence. Because you see, here's the story of ancient Israel. There's this guy named Abraham, and God comes to this guy named Abraham, and he says, hey, listen, I want you to leave where you're at, leave your family, leave everything you know, I want you to go to a place I'm going to show you, and if you'll do that, this is going to be the result. I'm going to make of your descendants a great nation, which would ultimately become the nation of Israel, okay? And he says this, God says this to Abraham, he gives him a unilateral, one-sided agreement. He says this, you do this, and I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. Just a declaration, not because you've done anything to earn it, not because you've done anything to deserve it. This is just my plan. This is my declaration. You will be my people. I will be your God. And Abraham leaves, and God begins to make a great nation out of his descendants. And we begin to see that process take place all throughout the Old Testament. And in Genesis, we see that process begin. In Exodus, we see the nation of Israel in captivity in Egypt. We see Moses leading them out into the wilderness, leading them out of the nation of, of uh, out of Egypt, heading to the promised land. He spends 40 years in the wilderness. While he's there, God gives this thing called the Ten Commandments as a guide to morality and how to do life right. A picture of what's right and what's wrong. As God continues to to intervene with his people and continues to relate to his people. And he says, I'm your God, you are my people. And there's this relationship that is unilaterally decided by God. It's just God declaring, this is what I'm going to do. And as Israel begins to drift from God, God sends messages through his prophets and says, here are the things that you need to correct and here are the things that you need to do. And oftentimes he would, he would even remind them that one day, one day I'm going to send my promised redeemer and he's going to come to your rescue. And prophets like Isaiah would say, you'll know him when he comes because he, he, he will be incredible. He will, he will be a mighty God and an everlasting father and a prince of peace. He'll be the wonderful counselor. He will come and he will set the captives free. And all of Israel, as they, are, as, as they understand that God is their God and they are his people, they have this relationship with him. And then there's this prophet named Malachi. And after Malachi declares, thus saith the Lord, God goes silent. And he, and he stops speaking to the nation of Israel. And, and during that process of 400 years in God's silence, the nation of Israel experiences captivity and and, and they experience being under, having no sovereign rule of their own. They're, they're, they're living in a land that's not even considered their own as they find themselves under the rule of the Persians and under the rule of the Greeks and the Babylonians and ultimately the Romans. You see, you, you, you may be familiar with Israel's recent history in 1948 as they were given their land back formally and they became the so they, they, they gained sovereign control of the nation of Israel, this, this land in the Middle East, was the first time that they, had, that they had ever had control since the days of Hezekiah found in 2 Kings in the Old Testament. 
Since 2 Kings, they've never, they hadn't even had a land of their own. And for 400 years of that, God went totally silent. And in the first century, what you have is a nation wondering, does God even hear us? We hadn't heard from him in 400 years. And by the way, we read through scripture and we read 400 years like, oh, God didn't talk for 400 years. No, listen, 400 years. Let me give you an idea of how long 400 years is. It's almost twice as long as this nation has been a nation. All right? Let me give you a better picture of how long 400 years is. 400 years would be what we are to George Washington. Like if you can imagine how long, I mean, George Washington, our first president, 400 years would be George Washington's George Washington. We go back in time to George Washington, we're halfway to 400 years, roughly. I mean, we're talking about, we're talking about 400 years ago in, our, in today's language would be like, you know, 1623. So we're talking about, you know, you're, you're talking about like knights in shining armor days, like fighting fiery dragons or something. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's the days of, it's like the Gutenberg printing press is the hot thing on the market, right? 400 years. Since that time, God says nothing to the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel has to be finding themselves going, God, where are you? You feel like you're a million miles away. And I know I've been told you love us and you're our God and we're your people, but do you like us anymore? Because we ain't heard anything from you in like 20 generations, 30 generations, something crazy. Like a long time, we haven't heard anything. And then suddenly this guy named Jesus shows up, born in a manger, in a barn. By the way, those of you who don't know what a manger is, a food trough, right? I love that song, Away in a Manger. I love it. Because it's like, that's the best way to like pretty up. Like nobody writes a song. You know, we, we write the song away in a manger, no crib for a bed, the little Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head. My favorite part of that song is like no crying he made. I'm like, what Jesus are they talking about? No crying he made? I promise you he cried. Ask Mary one day. He cried. You know how I know that? Because he's a baby. Babies cry. Right? But we got to make that song pretty because nobody, nobody sings the song that's like, We'll sing away at a manger. We won't sing down in a food trough. You know what I mean? Down in the food trough where the cow slobber lays. I mean, we ain't going to sing that. But he's born. Like God shows up. Jesus shows up, and he's laid into a food trough in a barn in this little town in the Middle East called Bethlehem. Totally obscure, totally unassuming. And 33 years later, as he grows up and he's an adult, there's this day when the people who are the closest to him, not talking about just average, everyday Israeli citizens, I'm talking about men who ate dinner with him, men, and, men who had watched him heal the blind and cause the deaf to hear and made the lame walk, men who, men who had camped out with him, who had left their livelihoods, to follow this guy who promised to be the savior of the world. They find themselves with Jesus and an odd request. Here's the request he makes. You're going to love this because I bet you felt like these guys before. He says, on that day when evening comes, this is the request. He says to him, let us go across to the other side. The other side of what? The other side of the lake. There's a big lake there. 
Jesus has like fed 5,000 people, maybe closer to 20,000 people. He, they, he's, he's performed miracles, and he's like, I just want to get away. So he says to the disciples, let's go to the other side. So leaving the crowd, they took with them, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. They just get in a boat and they go, no big deal, right? Just an average everyday story, get in a boat and go. And then something happens that changes everything. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. These men, who many of them were fishermen and had been in boats before, find themselves in a storm so bad that the boat is filling up, it's about to sink, and they are terrified. I don't know how bad the storm has to get for somebody who stays on boats to be afraid, but it got that bad. And when their boat began to fill, and their expectations began to plummet, and their fear began to raise... They look around and go, where in the world is Jesus? And I wonder if you've ever felt like that in your life. That as your boat began to fill up, as your expectations begin to fall, as your fears begin to rise, I wonder if you ever find yourself in the same place the disciples were, where they finally find him and they wake him up and they actually have the audacity and the gall to ask this question that you've been wanting to ask. But because you've been to church a time or two, you're afraid to ask. But you've been thinking it. They say, teacher, Jesus, Lord, God, do you not care? Somewhere in the dark recesses of the night as you lay in the bed, thinking about the diagnosis or wondering what you're going to do about a job or concerned about your relationships or wondering how you're going to explain to the kids that your spouse is going to leave. Trying to figure out what you're going to do about kids that are making decisions that you hope they wouldn't make. And you find yourself asking this same question God, do you not even care? Because it sure does feel like, God, that my scales are tipped way in this direction, like you just really don't like me anymore. Like you're really just being silent. Like, like I'm starting to understand Israel's 400 years of silence, God, because I've prayed and you're not saying anything. And more importantly, you're not even doing anything. Like, God, I might, I might could even reconcile this in my mind if, like, somehow you spoke to me and said, hey, I'm just not going to do anything about this. That might be okay, but, God, you're not even saying anything. I'm begging, and you're not listening, and you're not anywhere to be found, and it seems to me that you're in the stern of the boat, sound asleep on a cushion somewhere. God, do you not even care? And let me tell you this. If you're not there now or you've not been there before, there's a good possibility that there's a day coming where this is the very thing you're going to think. And the real question this morning is, when you find yourself in a place where you wonder if God cares, what do you do? If you're here this morning and you find yourself in that season right now that you're wondering if God cares, then what I want to say to you this morning is, I want to show you a verse of Scripture that is so powerful 
that is probably the most memorized verse of Scripture in the whole Bible. If you're there this morning and you find yourself going, I really want to believe God loves me, but I don't know if he likes me, and I certainly don't know if he cares. I want to show you something so familiar that you may very well question its impact. But I want your attention just for a minute to help you understand what to do when it feels like your scales are tipped in the direction that God doesn't care for you. Because see, here's what I believe. I believe Jesus knew that at some point in your life you were going to find yourself in that season. In a season where it feels like he was silent or in a season where it feels like he's asleep. And what you do in those seasons can have a dramatic impact on the trajectory of your life. And this morning, I want to try to give you one little helpful piece of advice on what to do when you find yourself in that season. You see, I think Jesus knew you'd be there at some point. And so one day, he's talking to a teacher of the law by the name of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is so confused. He thought he had everything figured out. As a teacher of the law, he was like, I understand the Ten Commandments. I understand God's laws. I understand. He even understood the book of Leviticus. And most of us can't even say that word. But yet when he heard Jesus teach, he was like, I'm not sure if I understand anything. And he goes at night to find Jesus. And in part of the conversation he has with Jesus, Jesus says something so revolutionary that years later, it would be one of the things that John would remember to write down. And as John wrote it down, two centuries later, or 2,000 years later, 20 centuries later, we find at every football game in America, somebody's going to hold up a sign with this verse reference in it. We've had quarterbacks that even find a way to put it in the eye black. And outside of Jesus wept is probably the most memorized verse in all of Scripture. As I believe Jesus knowing you would wonder if he cared and if he was there. He said these words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You say, well, Matt, I, I've heard that before. I mean, we live in Alabama. We've all heard that before. I know. But I want you to hear it differently this morning. You see, sometimes things become so familiar that they lose their impact. But I believe that when Jesus was saying this, I believe that he had the capability and the capacity to look through the quarters of time. And I believe he was able to look at your situation and see exactly what you're going through and understand the concern and the doubt that you would have about whether he's even there and whether he even cares. And that what you would possibly have the tendency to do is to look at the scale of your life and weigh in the good things and the not-so-good things. We take an honest inventory and honestly find times, and most of the time maybe in our life, where it seems like things are tipped in the direction that it just doesn't feel like God cares. And in those moments, I think that he would want to provide you a framework of understanding what his love truly is. And in doing that, as he spoke to Nicodemus, 
I believe he was looking through the quarters of time and saying directly to me and you that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but would have eternal life. You see, I think what's important in this verse is what Jesus didn't say that day. He didn't look at Nicodemus and say that God loves you so much that you will never have to worry about a cancer diagnosis because he'll make sure that won't happen. So he didn't say that. He didn't say, hey, I want you to know that I love you so much that every deal you're ever going to make is going to be a good one. He didn't say, God loves you so much that you won't deal with pain and heartbreak and difficulty and stress. He didn't say, God loves you so much that your kids will always do exactly what you want them to do and they will never disappoint you. He didn't say, God loves you so much your spouse is never going to leave you. He didn't say, I love you so much that there will never be a time that it doesn't seem like I'm a million miles away or that I don't care. Instead, he says this. In whatever you're going through and in whatever you're experiencing, as you begin to realize that the scales seem to tip toward the thought and the idea and the possibility that I'm not there and I don't care, however far those scales get tipped, you remember that my love was defined when I came to get you. That when I sent my son, I took a weight so large that no difficulty could ever compare. And I tipped the scales when I sent my son. And I left no doubt as to what I thought about you. Because when I sent my son, I determined that you were worth him. You were worth his sacrifice. You were worth his blood. You were worth his attention. You were worth his redemption. And though you may deal with stuff that makes you think that I'm not there and I don't care, I declared once and for all that I care when I gave my son. And the most helpful thing I think I can tell you this morning is that when God sent his son, he tipped the scales in our life. So that everything that seems to be unable to be understood and everything that seems to say that God doesn't care or that maybe he's not there loses its impact and loses its power and loses its authority when being compared to what God graciously gave us. When the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords found himself being born in a manger in an obscure town in Israel in a barn. In that moment, God gave and declared once and for all that he likes you and he loves you and he is there and he cares. So what? So what does that do for us in our life? Well, I thought about it. And I can't wait to share the rest of this series with you as we look at the rest of this verse and how it can impact your life. But for this morning, I think what I would want you to leave here and maybe know and understand is that virtually every relationship in your life is transactional. 
almost every one of them, there's give and take. There's expectation and entitlement. Uh, if, if no one else understands that in the room, it's every wife in the room. You understand that? Because this is your thought very often of your husband. Is it too much to ask with all I do around here that he fill in the blank, right? It could be anything. That he just pick up after himself occasionally, right? I mean, I bet you that right there, right there I have a whole bunch of ladies in the room that goes, are you going to talk about that, that at that conference? No, I'm not going to talk about it. You know why? Because Jennifer has the same complaints about me. And by the way, if you've been around him that long and he's still doing it, he's probably going to. We're going to try not to, right, man? Just do this right there. That's right. But every relationship is virtually transactional. I do this and I expect that. I do this and I'm entitled to that. And so we approach our relationship with God in the same transactional method. But let me tell you something about God. And I want you to hear me clearly. There is nothing you will do today or tomorrow or any day the rest of your life. That you, there's nothing you could possibly do that would make God love you any more than he does right now. There's no amount of good, no deeds you can do. You can't read your Bible enough, pray enough, sing enough, clap enough, worship enough to make God love you one ounce more than he does right now. And there's no amount of sin, no amount of depravity, no amount of mistake, no amount of oops that you could possibly do right now to God make God love you any less. His love is not transactional. It was declared by the fact that he gave. And because of that, what I want for you is I want you to learn to do this. I want you to learn to live from love and not for love. To live your life from God's love, not for God's love. To understand that you couldn't earn it and you don't deserve it anyway. It was just declared. It was unilaterally offered to you at no cost simply because he loves you. And his love is not defined by your circumstances. It's defined by his gift. And he gave the greatest gift in his son. And so you don't have to spend your life trying to figure out how to earn God's love, deserve God's love. You don't have to go through life and every time something bad happens, goes, well, I guess that means God doesn't like me. Or I wonder what I did this time. And I know you've thought that, by the way. You ever had something bad happen and go, well, I wonder which... Wonder which thing it is that God knows of that's caused this today. Right? I remember as a kid, I man, I just lose something. Like, can't find my belt. And I'm like, what did I do that made God make me lose my belt? And then one day I'm like, surely God's too busy for that, <laughs> right? Like, to make me lose my belt. That's so dumb, right? But it's this misconception because we live so transactionally with our love and our affection that we assume God does. So we, live, we try to live for God's love. There's this constant effort to earn God's approval. You couldn't meet his expectation anyway, so he sent his son to fill in the gap. He declares his love through his gift. You live from love. Live loved today. Don't live to be loved. Just live love. Live from love, not for love. And understand, then when it feels like the scales are tipped and everything seems to be working against you and it seems like God's not there and he doesn't care, remember, he tipped the scales when he sent his son. Let's pray.
Father, thank you so much for this morning. And thank you for your word. And thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you loved so much that you sent your son. And that you offer salvation to whosoever believes. Thank you that you love so much that you didn't wait on us to come to you. You came to us. God, if there's somebody here this morning that's never placed their faith and they're trusting you and the finished work on the cross, I pray this morning that maybe just as we're even praying that they would, they would say to you, God, I want to know you. I believe that what you did on the cross was enough to pay the price for my sins, to purchase my eternity, and I place my hope and my trust in you. God, thank you for coming to get us. In Jesus' name, amen.